Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about people standing up for the truth, stepping up on the issues of the day, and speaking up when it matters most. I am your host, Miles Taylor. I'm excited to be hosting this on Call-In, a social podcasting app that allows us to take questions from listeners. And today we have a guest who is a sitting member of Congress, but many of you are maybe more interested to know she is a former spook. She is a former employee of the Central Intelligence Agency, which always makes her story fascinating. I'm thrilled to welcome someone who uh, embodies the idea of speaking up and standing up, and that is Abigail Spanberger, United States Congresswoman from Virginia. Congresswoman, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Miles. It is great to have you. I know you answer this question every single week, but can you tell us a little bit about your transition from the shadows uh, <laughs> into, in, into Congress? Why? Why does a spook go from, uh, you know, chasing bad guys in dark corners of the world uh, to having to be on the House floor with, with a different type of bad guy sometimes? There's there's some spooky people in the House well, of Representatives. The- Why'd you make the transition? (laughs) The funny thing, though, Miles, is that I initially made the transition from CIA officer uh, to kind of (laughs) uh, my my goal had been to to live a relatively normal life. Uh, So I left the agency back in 2014. Uh, I had at that point, uh, my husband and I are both from Virginia, wanted to move back home, wanted to pivot from public service and, and national security issues to real kind of community focused engagement. And so I, we moved back home um, and I got a job in the private sector and I started volunteering. I became a Girl Scout leader and, and my intent had really been to be really community focused, which, you know, I loved my time at CIA, but at CIA, you're moving every two to three years you're constantly on the go. And, and I, I really wanted to shift from that kind of national service to community service. Um, and so I, I thought I was going to live a kind of uh, relatively uh, normal life uh, in the suburbs and uh, <laughs> then decided to uh, upend all of that uh, and run for Congress, which is decidedly also not a normal path, much like my CIA time. So, but for, I mean, for me, the, the real transition, I think the common thread is that I wanted to focus on um, you know, in my first iteration uh, of a career, it was national service. It was service to our country. It was working to make sure we were keeping communities and people and Americans safe and inform our policymakers. Um, and then ultimately, what drove me to get involved in politics and ultimately to run for political office is I just thought about all of the different sacrifices and sort of strange challenges that I faced along the way in order to be able to collect really good, solid information to help somebody else off in Washington uh, make a good decision. And I just didn't see enough good decision-making taking place informed, sort of thoughtful, uh, weighing all your options, decision-making. So that's what ultimately motivated me to run. I want to ask you the question you were asked a lot when you were in the national security community and probably get asked now, you know, folks in that realm often are, are quizzed on what keeps them up at night. And I'm curious when you were in the CIA, what were the biggest threats you were worried about? And, and now in a very different role as a sitting member of Congress, how has your perspective on threats to our country and democracy changed? So when when I was at CIA, I worked a whole variety of issues, predominantly counterterrorism cases. I mean, as so many agency officers do, and so my my biggest fear was always that 
you know, we'd, we'd somehow miss a threat and that there would be an attack. Um, and, you know, the, the pretty incredible thing about the intelligence community is you never know of all the successes, right? So you never know about the attack that was thwarted or the attack that never came to be. Um, but, but what really kept me up at night is that there would be um, an attack and that um, uh, that, that would, in, I mean, you know, a, a, a horrible kind of missed piece of information that would lead towards the, to the death of Americans. Uh, you know, on a longer range scale, I worried about the trajectory of Russia and Iran um, both of which are areas of dis, you know, er, topics that I that I dealt with in in my old in my old job, but you know there wasn't necessarily the same immediacy. Um, you know, many many of my counterparts uh, focused on China and China's rising influence. That that wasn't an area that I worked on as much in my job, but certainly kind of from a longer term strategic understanding the risks and what's happening in the world kind of the, the rise and influence of China throughout the world um, is certainly a topic. So, um, you know, the immediacy of a terrorist threat, uh, the plans and intentions of the Russian government, uh, particularly Vladimir Putin, the risk of, uh, of a nuclear Iran, and then uh, longer range sort of economic uh, challenges. And, you know, now it's interesting because now I'm in Congress and I take those same threats that used to be on my mind um, and now I'm looking at the impact on people. Um, so it used to worry me what, what Vladimir Putin might, might do in, um, the regional impact, but, you know, now I'm representing a community that's heavily agricultural. And so we're looking at a 40% rise in fertilizer prices from before Russia invaded Ukraine to now and the impact that that has on the people that I represent and, you know, agricultural producers across the country, um, I'm looking at the economic, um, rise of China, um, and what that means on industry and business and jobs here at home. Um, and, and frankly, as I was looking at, uh, the bit of experience I never really thought would be, uh, as relevant was the rise of extremism, um, and a lot of the counterterrorism efforts that I endeavored to, you know, that I worked on overseas, um, or, uh, you know, domestically, but outward facing, you know, now we see, um, a, a rise of conspiracy theories and extremist ideology here at home, uh, while very, very different from the threat I was contending with, um, you know, certainly a, a worrisome trend. You mentioned Russia. I want to ask a, a pointed question. You can dodge it if you want, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who's a bigger threat to our democracy, Vladimir Putin or pro-Putin figures inside our own government and political system? The bigger threat to democracy sort of across the board, it would be the, the partnership of those. Um, that's that bit of a, a that unholy alliance, the threat to our democracy um, is anybody who's willing to give an inch to Vladimir Putin, anyone who's willing to excuse away the, what he's doing, uh, the murder of civilians, the bombing of a maternity hospital. Um, and, and so, you know, they're, they're all a tremendous threat. But when our sense of right and wrong here at home, our defense of democracy here at home falters in favor of a foreign nation's autocrat who would murder you know, mothers and children and babies in a maternity ward, 
that that threat is is so deep and and so powerful that it we have to we have to be incredibly aware of it. Tell me a little bit about you know we'll, we'll talk about Ukraine and the autocratic threats to the world and then transition domestically. But um, what's your make of the conflict at the moment? And you know, bigger picture, is this a new Cold War that we're facing with Moscow and the Kremlin? I think a lot will, uh, I mean, I think we're in a shifting landscape. I think that we are, um, you know, seeing an incredible fight for democracy and for freedom uh, that the Ukrainians are, are waging. And, you know, I think they set an extraordinary example for anyone the world round in terms of uh, the value that our democracy, that, you know, our democracy here at home or democracy um, in other places should have to any sort of freedom loving person anywhere. Um, and so, you know, so far they have just been extraordinary in holding off Russian attackers. I mean, of course they've, they've suffered horrific casualties, civilian and military. Um, but, um, you know, I think that, that their work has been, their fighting has been an inspiration. Um, and, and so what the next six months to a year looks like, I think, you know, there's certainly uh, people with access <laughs> to broad scopes of intelligence in terms of plans and intentions who might be, you know, writing uh, great reports on that. But I think that generally speaking, um, it is a, a bit early to determine where we're going. I do think that there cannot be a return to normal engagement with Russia so long as Vladimir Putin is the leader of that country. Um, we can't regardless of the ultimate outcome in Ukraine, and, and I clearly want the Ukrainians to be triumphant, we cannot return to some level of normalcy with a nation that has aggressed against its neighbor in this horrific, horrific way. Um, to the, to so the what that, that you can, in the absence okay. of that, <laughs> in the absence of that, you know, I think there, you know, the next, the next, I, I would say three to five months are going to be very telling in terms of where we're, where we're going directionally with our relationship with, Russia or, you know, the, the, the future of the Russian Federation. For putting your uh, CIA hat on for a moment, yeah. to the extent that you can tell us, what would your former agency be doing that maybe the American people aren't seeing right now? I mean, certainly there's a lot of frustration because folks feel like Zelensky's requests aren't being met yeah. in full. There are types of weapons and capabilities that the Ukrainians need to win this fight. Um, maybe not all of that is being telegraphed publicly. Maybe it's important that we not telegraph all of that publicly. Could you help shed yeah. a little bit of light on how your <laughs> former agency could hypothetically play a role in making sure that that government gets what it needs to stand up to the Russians? All right. So, Miles, I'm going to begin by answering the question partially, and then I'm going to dodge on the CIA specific stuff, <laughs> just so we're clear. Um, and I acknowledge it fully. So, you know, I, I am fully in the camp of we need to provide more in terms of weapons and we need to do it yesterday. Um, and but I say that kind of in the, the timeliness and the urgency that exists. Um, the administration has provided tremendous, incredible support to the Ukrainians. Um, and, you know, I think a great advancement that we've seen is we are now, um, Slovakia is going to send its S-300 system and we're going to backfill that, um, with other air defense systems, right? So this is incredibly important. This is an, 
an important new development. And, and I think one of the behind the scenes issues that, that isn't secretive is that, but it is behind the scenes is the United States has not only been providing uh, lethal aid in terms of the switchblades and the, uh, uh, and javelins and, and, we have also been facilitating the transfer of resources to the Ukrainians. Um, and we've been doing that by pulling together our allies and our partners and ensuring that those who can provide support are providing support. Um, and that's a little bit less visible, that, that engagement that exists um, through the Department of Defense and, and through the Department of State. Um, and from the administration directly. Um, and that's really important. We're also providing medical aid and communications aid and intelligence sharing. Um, and, and very broadly, that is providing significant support to the Ukrainians. Now, in terms of what else might be occurring by some of the intelligence agencies, you know, I would just say that I am so very proud of the men and women of the CIA, of the other U.S. intelligence agencies that are doing just extraordinary work and frankly have been doing extraordinary work um, directly engaging with Ukrainians, um, both military forces and, uh, and leadership, um, in ensuring that we are being as helpful as we can. I, th I think that one thing that is public that has been um, a kind of a tremendous choice and a departure from what's normal uh, is that the decision of the administration to release intelligence. And, and so if you think back to the early days, uh, and I know it feels like a very long time ago, but the early days of the invasion before the invasion even started, uh, the intelligence community released information related to um, Russian intentions of using a falsified video to potentially give them a reason uh, to invade Ukraine. Um, and, and so here we have a, a departure from what's absolutely the normal standard operating procedure um, and, and at the time, there had been sort of news reporters saying, well, how do we validate this? You know, and, and the really interesting thing for me watching it is, well, this, you're not the audience. The American public's not even the audience. There's an audience of one, and that one is Vladimir Putin, to make sure that Vladimir Putin um, and his Russian counterparts know that we have eyes on information gathering capabilities uh, that make it so that we know what his steps are and we know what they're intending to do. Um, and to provide that out publicly is obviously with the intent of making sure he would be aware of it. Um, but also, you know, that's an example of the type of real engagement that the intelligence community has been able um, to, to leverage to support the Ukrainians, make sure that the Russians um, uh, you know, can't be successful in those sorts of propaganda efforts. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg in terms of the, the value that the uh, intelligence community has brought to this fight on the ground. Well, let, let's talk about propaganda efforts and how powerful a tool that is in modern day warfare. I, I want to give you an example. In just the past few weeks, the Russians have been actively promoting this absurd conspiracy theory that you and I know from our time in the national security community is, is truly ridiculous. And the conspiracy theory is that the United States has been operating secret bioweapons laboratories in Ukraine, and that it's one of the reasons why Russia needed to invade Ukraine is to dismantle these bioweapons labs. This just five weeks ago was a complete fringe conspiracy theory started online and apparently spread by the Russian government, uh, in some cases very overtly in their national <laughs> media. Now, flash forward a little over a month, 
25% of Americans now say that it is definitely true or probably true that the United States is operating bioweapons laboratories in Ukraine. And this, this same poll saw a huge spike in QAnon beliefs in our country. I mean, one in four Americans now believe this bioweapons lab lie spread by the Russians. I, I wonder first just what you think about that phenomenon and how quickly that misinformation spread. And two, what does that mean for our national security when a foreign government's propaganda like this can spread virally? Well, I, I think we have seen that the Russians continue to be um, very strong and uh, in their deployment of propaganda efforts. I mean, f- you know, frankly, going back <laughs> years and years and years and years, but when they were planting stories in newspapers, that was a very different um, process that it, it resonated with the American people. It didn't permeate society in the same way when you had to one by one try and plant newspaper articles or one by one, you know, kind of plant ideas in places. The, the, the utilization of social media has allowed for these conspiracies to threat, to spread and they're being validated by friends and family and people who are trusted purveyors of information. Um, and that becomes the issue when you're, cousin reposts something or your mother reposts something or your neighbor down the street reposts something, uh, it, it relaxes you a bit in terms of what you see coming in. Um, and, and the Russians have become so good. Uh, and I don't mean that as a compliment. I mean, it as a statement of just reality at pushing out information where they create the foundation for it. And, you know, there's a kernel of something that, yeah, that seems believable. And then they build upon it. Um, it but, but we have seen, and certainly, you know, going back a few years, going back to the Mueller report, you know, frequently we talk a lot when, when people are talking about the Mueller report, it's some of the things that relate to the former president. But in fact, a, a substantial amount of the Mueller report details Russian propaganda efforts to influence the American electorate and to engage the American electorate. And, and regardless of kind of whether their efforts did or didn't take root or were, or were not successful, like that as the, as Americans is not, is not actually the central threat. The central threat is that they're trying. The central threat is that, you know, again, according to that report, Russians in Russia got Americans in Texas to do a protest and a counter protest all by creating these online personalities, sowing anger, sowing ideas and, and sowing misinformation. Um, and so this, what we see now with this biolab idea is just a continuation of their propaganda efforts. And really inherent in it is their effort to try and say, Oh, well, look, you know, look at the United States is and all that you know, uh, whatever adjective they would want to use, because now they're saying that, you know, the United States has nefarious intents and the United States is doing something and Russia has to be functioning in a, you know, a, a positive way here. And of course, none of that um, is true, but they have strung out bit by bit and they've just, you know, gotten it into the ecosystem of information that it, it just catches on fire um, and, and leads to the devastating numbers that you just mentioned in terms of the number of Americans who believe it. And, and, oh, you know, the number of Russians back home that might agree, that might believe it. And so, you know, when they're validating 
and trying to excuse away the horrific war crimes they're committing on the ground in Ukraine, you know, that's when they're pointing at, you know, the allegations that, that they've now made and that they've convinced people are true related to the United States. Well, you know, look, it, the bioweapons lie that, that we're doing that in Ukraine maybe doesn't have the same sort of immediate effect on our democracy. But as you hinted at, you know, from 2016 onward, the Russians have spread extensive disinformation about our elections, the security of our elections, and have tried to actively undermine confidence in them to the point now that one of the biggest discussions in American politics still continues to be, is our system rigged? And we've got historic numbers of Americans who say they don't have faith in the democratic process. You're in an election year. This is a midterm yeah. cycle. You're running for reelection. Are you seeing this on the ground? Are you seeing that the concern about the elections being rigged is something that folks are really worried about? And, and what impact will that have on this cycle and, and election cycles to come? So the answer to your question is yes, I'm seeing it on the ground. Um, but I think, it, you know, there are some who ascribe to this whole general notion of the big lie. Um, and, and certainly that is one bucket of a challenge. Um, but in addition to that, there's also just a greater sentiment of worry related to elections. Um, you know, I, I think that there has been such an effort to undermine all aspects of how a ballot is cast, who's casting ballots, how do you cast a ballot, how do you vote by mail, how do you not vote by mail, what is early voting, um, you know, what are drop boxes, um, and, you know, states function differently, right? States administer the elections. And so different states have different rules and different regulations related to how many days of early voting, things like same day registration, whether there are drop boxes or not. And so then even the fact that location to location, there's differences somehow kind of validates this worry that, oh, well, they do it differently there or there. Um, when really that's, I mean, sadly, it's just basic civics that the process for early voting might be different in Virginia uh, than it is someplace else. Um, and, and so I, I do think it is really very concerning. Um, the, you know, other people who have fully kind of ascribed to the big lie, though, I mean, notably, um, and, and it's a re Republican colleague from Texas made this point uh, in the early days of January 2021, which is, you know, no one is, de no, no one is debating whether or not, you know, let's use Pennsylvania and Arizona as examples. No one was debating whether or not, you know, they had won in their own individual seats, but somehow they were concerned that there was fraud at the top of the ticket, but not uh, on the same very ballot that elected them to Congress, uh, which, you know, is a particularly notable <laughs> disconnect that not a lot of people seemed all that concerned with, except for a, a few uh, a few Republicans who were raising that level of inconsistency. How bad is the, uh, the, the cacophony, if you will, on the House floor and the partisan disagreement? You're down there with those members every single day. Some of them you probably try not to brush shoulders with because they've become, you know, characters of themselves. Um, does it feel more and more divisive down there? Are folks retreating to their silos? Um, and it, even if you're, even if your answer is pessimistic, give us a little hope. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the, the overall answer, and I, yeah, I was elected in 2018, so I've been in Congress since January 2019, not so long. Um, but it has certainly gotten worse just in the short time that I've been there. Uh, you know, the pandemic certainly didn't help. We had a, a year and a half of, um, kind of, and I guess still it's ongoing, kind of changed procedures for public safety and, you know, committee hearings can be virtual. And, you know, we had, we were voting in shifts so that not everybody would be on the floor. So, you know, there's certainly like in all aspects of people's lives, there's been a, a greater level of disconnect um, between members of Congress, um, which hasn't been helpful. Certainly, you know, an, an insurrection uh, and, an, and a violent assault on the Capitol hasn't been helpful, um, particularly when some people deny the reality of what that day was and the fact that police officers were beaten with American flagpoles and uh, and, and many, many people were in, in fear for their lives that day. Um, that hasn't been helpful. But where I do find a bit of hope is that there are um, individuals who may continue to disagree on policy, can even very vehemently, very, very significantly, who still want to come together, who still don't necessarily um, intend to just vilify the other side for political gain. And, and so I'm part of a, a bipartisan caucus called the Problem Solvers Caucus. Um, and it's 29 Democrats and 29 Republicans. And we get together when we're on Capitol Hill at least once a week, uh, we try to do it virtually when we're back home in our districts to talk about um, policies that we're pursuing to explore different topics. We invite in speakers. Uh, you know, we have breakfast together. It, it, it sounds very, very basic that, you know, a group of members of Congress would get together in a room, have a cup of coffee, talk about issues and, you know, share some updates related to the legislation that they're working on. But in the reality, like this is the place where anyone with an intentional desire to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to find places where we can work together. Um, you know, this, this is where that's happening. And so that's where I have a lot of, um, my hope is that we still have, you know, I wish it was all of Congress, but we still have a, a good number of people who, you know, will say, listen, despite it's, it's in fact, perhaps because of my policy disagreements with you that I want to sit down, uh, and, and talk about the things that we might agree on. Um, and so that's where I, I do find some hope, but it is a really, really difficult, uh, difficult time. And I, I would also just note that plenty of people um, electorally benefit from vilifying the other side, from character, you know, making making the other side into sort of a caricature of of a legislator um, for for pushing on this notion that they think Washington is broken. And to be clear, I mean, there's a lot of problems on Capitol Hill. We need a lot of change. Um, and, and I'm sort of chief among those who've been vocal on that point. Um, but to use it to sort of electoral, to one's electoral benefit, I think is, is really problematic and, and detrimental to um, the, the system of governance that, frankly, we need to get working again um, for the strength of our democracy and the, for our you know, country and people's futures. I, I know we only have time for a few more questions on this end, but I want to ask you about January 6th, because you mentioned the insurrection. There was a cover story on the Atlantic in January, and the headline was January 6th was practice. You know, Trump's next coup has already begun. And I think the subhead was Trump's GOP is much better positioned to subvert the next election. I think Barton Gelman, who wrote that, was really talking about 2024. Um, I want to get your sense as a national security expert 
uh, about how serious the threat really is. Was January 6th, in your mind, a flash in the pan, or is it symptomatic of much more, uh, much deeper roots of extremism that are being planted in our country right now? I think it is uh, a much indicative of a, of a much bigger problem. I don't think it's a standalone circumstance. And, and in fact, there's evidence of that. So as a Virginian, we would point to Charlottesville, which, um, you know, seems like it's disconnected, but indeed it's not that there were people marching in the streets, marching, chanting Nazi slogans. Um, it, it became violent. That was a, that was in a clash of sort of right-wing ideology with everybody else. Um, we saw the armed protesters descend upon the Michigan Capitol, and there was a pretty elaborate scheme that people were arrested for. Um, in, in, that was a scheme to um, uh, kidnap uh, the governor of, of Michigan. Um, and so it's a continuation, right? What we saw on January 6th was the continuation of this idea that um, you can aggressively like attack a space or attack a people or, um, you know, bring, bring violence to, um, to, to government. And we now know because people have pled guilty um, that they intended you know, at least many of the people who were there that day intended to stop Congress from doing its job. They intended to stop Congress from certifying the election. And so that is just extraordinary. If, if you actually, that's not voicing complaints, that's not marching in pink hats, that's not saying, you know, we're unhappy. That is literally they wanted to stop Congress from doing its job. Um, and, and they did it by beating police officers. They did it by, you know, coming at the Capitol and, and throwing fire extinguishers and getting arrested with all sorts of weaponry, planting bombs, right? Let's not forget there's somebody out there who planted two pipe bombs that still hasn't been caught. Um, and so that's the reality of the, the ongoing threat. Um, and this is why it's so important that as we approach 2022, that we make clear that, you know, our elections are safe and secure and that no matter the outcome of an election for any of us, you know, from, from at the local level on up, um, that no matter how you may feel about the outcome of an election, that, you know, we go through the proper process. And, and this is where, you know, my, my colleagues, I think for some of them, um, really missed an opportunity to demonstrate leadership for those, in the early days, and I had conversations with some Republican colleagues, right, in the early days when the election, it was clear that Joe Biden had won, said, well, you know, you know, folks in my district, they're really unhappy, so I'm going to wait until uh, the state certify, right? So election was early November, state certify the end of November after, you know, whatever audits and common practice they do. Well, so then the states certify. Well, 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 you know, I'll wait till the electoral college votes. You know, and all along the way, they had the opportunity to come out as, as we always do and say, you know, we Americans kind of throughout history, you know, oh, you know, congratulations to the president elect. You know, I look forward to working with him where I can and I'll stand up against him where, you know, I must, right? Like that's, I'm disappointed, you know, join in the disappointment with your, with your voters that they may feel related to the outcome of the elections. Um, and, and they didn't do it. And then it was, well, we'll wait till the electoral college votes. Okay, well, now we'll wait until 
um, we certify. And so that whole time, there was a, a, a gap of leadership that, you know, frankly, other members of Congress could have demonstrated. And in that vacuum, their voters who were unhappy, their constituents who were unhappy, didn't hear someone saying, yeah, I'm unhappy too, but this is the election, right? And, and these are people I know, I, that I know not for a minute think there was fraud in the election, right? But it's easier to just allow people to continue um, with these thoughts. And so looking towards 2022, this is an opportunity where we're going to have to demonstrate very, very clearly that we have faith in the elections. Um, you know, certainly let's note that nobody was doubting the outcome of the election here in Virginia in November 2021, right, when there was Republican sweeps across across the board and the we, the Democrats, lost the control of the House of Delegates. You know, certainly it's notable that no one is saying that they think that election was somehow um, kind of in doubt. Um, and it's the same electoral workers. It's the same ballots. It's the same process that will be used in, in 22 and 23 uh, and in 24 in Virginia. Um, and, and so I, I think we just all need to be very, very clear that the system is working. We may not always like the outcomes, um, but but wherever we can continue to affirm for the American people uh, that it is that it is working, we have to do so because sowing doubt in our system is is I mean brings forth the destruction of our democracy. Congresswoman, I know we need to wrap. Your you are clear eyed as always. I want to ask you a rapid parting question. You started your career as a spy. Uh, there's a, an acronym in intelligence circles, I think, called SADRAT, which, which describes what intelligence officers do. Spot, assess, develop, recruit, acquire, terminate, something along those lines about how you recruit a source. What skill did you learn as a spy that you are still using in Congress? <laughs> I um, you, you forgot about handling. Um, <laughs> there you go. Uh, I, I, the ability to listen. Right. Um, you're not a good intelligence officer if you don't listen. And arguably, you, you got to listen, listen, listen uh, and ask a lot of questions if you're uh, endeavoring to be a good representative. So I think uh, uh, asking questions and listening to the answers is probably the, the biggest skill set I bring from the intel community uh, back, uh, back over to Congress. Well, by all accounts, Congresswoman, you are still a master at your craft. You are acknowledged uh, as being... I don't know. I did a lot of talking today, Miles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, next time I get to duck. Uh, so grateful that you could join us. Thank you for what you're doing in Congress and, and pr providing a very clear perspective on what's happening. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to joining again in the future. And thank you, everyone, for joining for this episode of Speaking Up. Uh, we look forward to having you later this week for another exciting guest. We will talk to you soon.